Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction, and free shipping, and that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements, featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com slash ACAST and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's yeah. They have asked for that, really. Well, you can laugh. I'm the World Cup. I'm a little bit of an idealist, but having said that, I want to be like me. But I don't know what you're talking about. What did you want? I'd like to stay alive for six days. I'm going to leave it there. I'd say it to your face, and I'll say it to you now. I'm down to one field, and we'll see them. What you doing down here, you Johnny man? One hundred points, one hundred and six goals scored. 28,242 passes completed at an accuracy rate of 89%. Impressive numbers, all our records. I think I'm prepared to put my neck on the line at this stage and say Manchester City are deserved Premier League champions. Hello, everyone. Welcome to Monday Second Captain's Football Podcast. Hi, Ken. I'm Murph. Hello, Hello. how are you? And if you think for a second these kind of numbers don't matter to Pep Guardiola and his players, well, you obviously missed their wild celebrations of the Gabriel Jesus goal that clinched the 100 points in injury time. Against Southampton yesterday, I'm not the first person to say again that they looked as though they were they had just clinched the title with that goal. So happy they looked. Ah, uh, wasn't quite, wasn't quite. Tops in that off, league. Guardiola racing down the line, subs running off the bench, not a million miles off. Guardiola is very insistent about this that you have to always enjoy those little moments. I mean, remember when they won the Carabao Cup? And he, and he started going crazy oh, and yeah. running around and like grabbing people and saying, no, "You've got to celebrate now. If we don't celebrate the process." Then, yeah, what are we left with? Everyone's like, oh, Pep, seriously. <laughs> <laughs> they didn't need much persuasion yesterday now, I must say. The players weren't waiting for Pep's say-so. They were yeah. on their bike. Well, nice, nice to have a couple of days off, I suppose. I mean, almost all these players are now going to be going to the World Cup, uh, and this season has been over for them for a long time. Um, but they have set some big records. I mean, it, it was the only thing. I mean, it was what Guardiola was saying after they you know, won the title, when they were knocked out of the Champions League, he said, okay, we're, we've got a bunch of things still to do here. They may not be the sort of things people are all that excited about, but, you know, <laughs> it's for the history books. They're, um, they're the sort of things that just about pep up uh, an otherwise not very eventful final day of the season for yeah. people watching. Yeah, I mean, the, the, you know, it's the players, I don't really think they care a huge amount about it. Um, 100 points, 98 points, <sighs> 106 goals. Well, they certainly goals. any players in any match like an old injury time winner. Yeah. I mean, was, if they'd won 1 0 early on, I don't think they would have been celebrating. If they'd scored the goal in the first half, would have been celebrating like that. But because of the circumstances of it and the quality of the goal, oh, no harm scoring a beautiful goal to clinch things either. Yes. And, and of course, Kevin De Bruyne clinching the prestigious Cadbury UK Playmaker Award with that kick. My boy John Joe Shelby couldn't have been a million miles off that. <laughs> he was brilliant again yesterday. What are you laughing at? How is there a debate about Shelby maybe possibly scraping into the England World Cup squad when he's there by a he mile? He should be the passer? fulcrum of the England yeah. World Cup charge. 
Um, should be. Well, uh, I mean, how, how many, has he played too many times for England in recent uh, times? I mean, I'm just a, I'm just going to look at the uh, Premier League assists because the Cadbury Playmaker Award is awarded to the player with most assists. Yeah. Uh, Kevin De Bruyne of Manchester City tops that table, 16, just ahead of Leroy Sané, Manchester City, 15, and David Silva, Manchester City, 11, and Raheem Sterling of Manchester <laughs> City, who also has 11. Then you've got Dele Ali, Christian Eriksen, Riyad Mahrez, Paul Pogba, Mohamed Salah, they're all on 10. Mkhitaryan on 9. Okay, so Shelby gives a pass before the assist. He opens Ozil, up the defence. Aaron Ramsey, Mark Albrighton, Bruno Firmino, William, <laughs> Mark Albrighton. <laughs> you definitely could have done without oh, hearing no. Mark Albrighton's name there. Where is John Joe Shelby? No, John Joe Shelby, it's like, you know when you can't quite open, say, a bottle of ketchup? Mm. For argument's sake. And then you pass it to somebody else and they open it straight away and you say, oh, well, I loosened it for yeah, you. Yeah, you did. John Joe Shelby loosens up the defence for the person who then provides the assist to the person who then scores the goal. He's or the assist to the assist. Perhaps team. more accurately, he's passing it to players who aren't finishing all these chances. That could be it, yeah, because yeah, he's playing. Well, John Joe, John Joe Shelby. King of the golf course, though, anyway. Can, Stats. Know. Sorry, on. Ah, you take your time there. Last uh, day of the season. Assists uh, 20 in the Premier League in his career. I don't know how to get a uh, ah, filter for this season. Let's see, Owen. Mm-hmm. Three yes. assists. Yes, yes. He's some way off the <laughs> Cabri UK Playmaker Award. Uh, created four big chances, though. That's not that many big chances. <laughs> <laughs> With 21 through balls and 157 accurate long passes. Well, maybe I've just picked very specific Newcastle games in which he's looked absolutely He's played very drawer. well in live... Television, live televised football games, two at least. Well, all those World Cup matches, all those World Cup matches are going to be on the on the television. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Kieran, so maybe uh, that's something to take into account. Now, today might be the end of our Premier League coverage this season, but it most certainly is not the end of the football. The FA Cup final to come next weekend, of course, between Manchester United and Chelsea. Then Ken here is off to Kiev to witness Liverpool winning their sixth European Cup, if all goes to plan. And from there, it's on to the big show in Russia. The 2018 World Cup in Russia will be up to the highest standard. Soccer is popular. From bottom of my heart, thank you. Maradona turns like a little eel and comes away from trouble. A little squat man leaves it for dead. Dennis Bergkamp leads the ball in. Dennis Bergkamp! Dennis Bergkamp! Yes, indeed. Soccer is popular. And the World, <laughs> the World Cup is a particularly popular tournament. From bottom of heart. Amazing, amazing. It starts okay. a month from today, believe it or not, everybody. And your esteemed football correspondent will be there reporting on all the drama. You're looking forward to it, Ken? Oh, can't wait, Owen. Yeah. Really can't wait. You don't have to wait another month, but we'll have a lot of build-up during the course of that month also. Don't forget that. Uh, not quite another month, and I'm going on the 12th. It's the 14th today, so that's less than a month for me. Oh, wonderful. Um, I'm, I'm, I, uh, I really am looking forward to it. The only way to get all the best football coverage during the summer is right here on Monday's Second Captain's Podcast and right through the tournament every day on the World Service. We have non-stop, wall-to-wall World Cup coverage. You can sign up now if you're not already there on secondcaptains.com. Now, can report on some sport, please. Of course, um, Pep... Uh, it's delighted to get the records, but of course now that they've done, now that they've got the records, the records, the records transform into a giant monkey uh, that sit on their backs from now on. 
because, uh, as Guardiola was saying, and this is a voice of experience here, he's a man who's done this sort of thing before with his previous teams. What happens now is that next season, everybody will compare all our numbers to this season and they won't be as good, so they will say, we are in decline and this is not important. So this is his point that, you know, records are great when you set them and then they just, then they just get used against you by your enemies, mm-hmm. of whom Manchester City have plenty. We'll get back to them in a second, but I, I do think that the big story of the weekend uh, across Europe in football is Barcelona... Losing to Levante, 5-4. The unbeaten record is gone. Have they won the league, though, Ken? Uh, okay, but but why did they lose to Levante? Okay, well, they lost to Levante um, because uh, Emmanuel Boateng had a great game, became the first player to score against score a hat-trick against Barcelona since Diego Forlan uh, 13 years ago. Um, he scored three. Um, Ennis Bardi scored two. Coutinho scored three and Suarez scored one. Um, and that meant that Levante finished with more goals than Barcelona and won the match, Owen. <laughs> uh, Barcelona were 5-1 down at one point. They were 5-1 down at the point at which I turned the match on. You mightn't have been the only one. Well, What's I, going on here? I did receive a, I did receive a WhatsApp. <laughs> <laughs> Levante beating Barcelona 5-1. Uh, you know, okay, I hadn't necessarily parceled off time to sit and watch Levante against Barcelona. But with their fi- when they were five and then you, you know okay they they came back and looked like they were probably because they had twenty minutes to make it five all which we'd already seen in in Scotland Aberdeen against Rangers nearly between Leicester and uh, Tottenham at Wembley but it didn't happen for uh, Barcelona either I mean okay this this was this was pretty bad obviously and the the way that the goals that they were conceding were were really embarrassing. Uh, the, the sort of goals Barcelona let in when they're defending badly, except five of them in one match, which hasn't happened since Lionel Messi made his debut for the club, but it has now. What was Messi's reaction to all this? I don't know, Owen, because he wasn't there. Lionel Messi was not in the Barcelona squad, and the reason, and this is why this is significant, is that he was being rested for this match in order that he would be fit to play in the friendly against Mamelodi Sundowns, which is happening on Wednesday evening down in Johannesburg to as part of the Nelson Mandela centenary celebrations. Barcelona are getting paid to play the South African champions in a prestige-friendly. And Messi was rested for that game and missed the game against Levante, and they conceded five goals and lost their unbeaten record, which really, in my opinion, takes a lot of the gloss off that season. Oh, it really does. I mean, you've got to, they've, won a, they've managed to win a league which they have no respect for. They treat their own league as though it was the Carabao Cup. They rest their best player so that he can play in a friendly so they can make more money. Real Madrid have evolved to the point where they don't even take the league seriously anymore. The league is just a sort of a, a, a thing that they can occasionally give the players a runaround to play in the Champions League. That's the, that appears now to be the level to, that, that La Liga has got to. Uh, I think it's actually a really big moment. I mean, it's, it's sort of typical of, of this Barcelona board. You know, it's, it's a board that all the Barcelona fans seem to hate because uh, they... Don't really, know, they don't really give much of an impression either of being principled about what Barcelona is, what kind of institution they're trying to develop and stand up for. Neither that nor basic competence. 
they're, they're not they're not competent either. They lose one of their star players. Uh, you know, they 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 don't see it coming. Neymar goes to Paris Saint Germain. You know, their replacements are like oh, you know, throwing throwing money around in a crazy way. But they still don't really seem to have built a team which is now beginning to show the strength. I mean, Messi is has been sensational. He's had a sensational season. He's he's winning, going to win the European Golden Boot again, the fifth time in his career that he's been the top scorer in Europe. He's not even playing as a striker. He's not even playing as a striker, and he's the top scorer in Europe again. And you know, he he has he has basically kept this entire show on the road. Iniesta is is leaving. Busquets is looking at you know even more sort of gangly and immobile than he has done for a long time. And what is the next plan for Barcelona? There is no plan. But this is a board that will throw away an achievement such as they could have been proud of being unbeaten in the league all season. One that is very difficult to... I mean, it's it's a kind of a weird one because it's not as though anyone begins the season saying, let's go unbeaten in the league this season. That's the only thing that motivates me. But it is a great thing to have achieved and to throw it away in such circumstances. I mean, I'm saying, you know, maybe maybe Messi could have played and they still would have lost 5-4 or lost the match. I mean, it's happened before. He's lost matches before for Barcelona. It does sound like there were some wide-open spaces to exploit on that pitch, though. <laughs> there it were might have been Messi's kind doesn't of game. doesn't seem like his sort of game, though. Yeah, I don't really... know if, he, if, if he'd like mm. all of that. There were space one or two wide-open spaces defending. to exploit. But, you know, I, I feel... You know, it's 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 not good. It's not going to do anything to improve his mood, certainly. Well, why didn't he step up then and say, I'm playing, as he often does, or, or maybe less realistically, the manager Valverde? Well, apparently he not have there's, said, well, there's contractual obligation. He has to turn up and play in this game on on Wednesday. Now, Messi himself would probably usually say, yeah, I'll play both play games, both, yeah. no problem. Yeah. But they do have to play the World Cup next month, which is going to be, you know, again, a lot of... Uh, a lot of traveling and, and he'll get to play plenty of matches in quick succession then don't worry about that so I think that he and given what happened to him in the last World Cup where he was just a shadow by the end of it he's probably thinking in those terms but apparently this is the match he's contractually obliged to play in the one in the Spanish League it didn't really matter and of course it doesn't matter because they've won the league but it does mean that they can't there's very little now to look back and be proud of this season they won a competition that Real Madrid don't even take seriously anymore and got knocked out of the Champions League in the quarterfinals. That's the season. What next? Well, I suppose we'll wait and see. Yeah. But going back to the uh, Premier League, Manchester City, obviously, with their 100 points, a record for the league, means four out of the last five titles have been won by oil oligarch-owned clubs. Since the arrival of Roman Abramovich, they've won eight out of 15 titles between Chelsea and Manchester City. Um... And four out of the last five, so it does show sort of the way things are going. Also, only the top six in the Premier League this season had a positive goal difference, which is the lowest of any recent season. Um, it's just the top six; everyone else is, is just is just trying to stay alive. That's what that's the kind of uh, league that we've got now. Um, the questions uh, have have been asked, Jose Mourinho, among the people you know, talking about how difficult it would be to close the gap. The good news is the gap is automatically closed by the summer. Uh, the summer break everyone will go back to zero points uh, Jose Mourinho uh, will be level at the start line with Manchester City he's talking about how difficult the transfer market is going to be could be in the transfer market although maybe not for a new assistant because he also has lost his assistant of 17 years Ruth yeah, this is a bit of a surprise I'm not really sure what's going on here again it's uh, 
it, it's one of these, you know, similar to, to Klopp and, and Buvac. I mean, it, it comes at the end of the season rather than the, well, not quite the end. I mean, they, they're, um, they still got the FA Cup, but it's like he will be leaving. It's not like he's he's gone. We don't know where he is. <laughs> so it's not quite as dramatic in that sense. It sounds as though he's getting a number one job. He's been offered a load of jobs over the years, apparently, as a Manage, mm. Manager in his own right. 17 years and the kid is now a man, Mourinho says. The kid is now a man, yeah. The kid was 25 uh, at the time of of their, the, when they began their working relationship. Uh, so he's now, what, 43, 44, um, 40, 43, I think. Um, so he is, uh, I don't know, we, we'll see if, he, if he's got a new job. I mean, Mourinho was saying he, he maybe won't hire an assistant manager or maybe Michael Carrick might become the new assistant manager. Uh, when he's, you know, done all his qualifications and so on. Um, Carrick, of course, was getting credit from Pogba for helping him to know what areas to put the ball in, which I wondered how Jose would take to. It's a bit of a banger President Bannon off it, I thought, when, when Pogba was giving it the, oh, thanks, Michael Carrick, for all the tips you give me in training. But maybe Jose's going to um, going to bring him in. Anyway, though... Uh, what have I got here? Uh, Damien Murphy emailed us to say, any chance of giving Spurs a bit of credit on the pod today for finishing third after 38 games away from home? That's a phrase Pochettino used, 38 games away from home. Uh, instead of lauding Liverpool for finishing fourth with less points than last season, fewer points than last season. The media love affair with Liverpool sickens my arse. Long time listener, sick of listening to Liverpool supporters. They're worse than United fans ever were before they won the league in 93. Regards, Damien Murphy. Thanks for that, Damien. The news from Tottenham is that uh, Maurizio Pochettino has asked uh, Daniel Levy whether he's got the stones <laughs> to keep this little arrangement of theirs going into a, into a new season. Um, Pochettino, of course, who had spoken after the Spurs got knocked out by Juventus in the Champions League about, um, you know, maybe me or another coaching staff will succeed with this club now is uh, saying we need to talk a little bit. Me and, uh, and Daniel Levy need to talk a little bit uh, between us and the club. I have a very clear ideas of what we need to do. I don't know if the club will agree with me or not, but we're going to talk next week to create the new project or what I think we need to do get together again to try to improve. That's a little bit up to Daniel, of course, and the club to agree with us. I think after four years, we need to assess the period and try to, if we want to play and be really contenders for big, big trophies, I think we, we need to review a little bit the thing. The thing. The thing, yeah. Uh, I mean, the thing, the situation is since Pochettino arrived, Tottenham, I think, have a net spend of £50 million, pounds, which isn't that much, considering they've been consistently doing well, um, getting into the top two or three uh, of the league. Um, uh, but, you know, the question is, what are they going to be able to keep this going? I mean, they have, although they've, they've, they they finished third, it's not as good a season as, as last season. Um They've, you know, they haven't they haven't played as well, and they're losing players, and to, to a certain extent, losing confidence. I mean, when I say losing players, obviously lost Kyle Walker. Um, they're probably going to lose Toby Alderweireld, and it's not like Toby Alderweireld is going to be going to some little club somewhere because Tottenham don't want him anymore. He is, um, I think, quite widely expected to be playing for Man United next season. Um, so you've got this. Uh, You've got the situation, which is get, which is obviously already a problem and going to get worse unless the policy changes. Um, is he right to force the issue now? Do you think? Well, I think it's interesting that he, 
uses the he, that he talks that he's challenging Daniel Levy. He says that he's asked, "Why wouldn't the club listen to you as their most successful manager in recent history?" Because he's basically saying we're doing this on the ch- on the cheap, and you kind of notice that the teams who are winning big prices big prizes are not the teams who are selling players for fifty million, but they're buying players for that. So, you know, even if you look at Liverpool, who are finishing behind Tottenham, with apologies to Damien Murphy, uh, they're finishing behind Tottenham in the in the league, but they're playing in the Champions League final. Maybe this is something to do with the seventy-five million pound centre back that they've got. You know what I mean? Um, Tottenham, I'm sure, would be a even better team with a player like that in their team, but they're not. They haven't been in the market for players like that. I mean, they've got a couple on that level, but. They they got Ericsson and Ali and Kane. Um, it's not as though they there was a huge queue of clubs trying to trying to get those players. Um, so uh, Pochettino says, um, I think Daniel is going to listen to me. You know I me. Mean? Maybe sometimes I have crazy ideas. You need to be brave in these types of situations with the club with our unbelievable fans. Being brave is the most important thing and take risks. I think it's a moment the club needs to take risks and try to work, if possible, harder than the previous season to be competitive again because every season will be worse and it will be more difficult. So, uh, Not sure how crazy the idea is. I think anyone looking in would realise that uh, while the money is a bit crazy, it's only in line with what he what it sounds like Pochettino is looking for is just something in line with the likes of Liverpool and mm. clubs along those. Well, they, of that ilk. they do. Um, he, I mean, it's it's just I don't know any chairman who likes being um, told by his hugely popular manager that he needs to be more brave, you know, uh, because it's a no win. It's kind, it's kind of okay. I can either do what you want, or everyone will think that I'm a chicken. Cheap, 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 cheap. Daniel Levy. He doesn't have the courage. Spurs are not competing because they don't have the courage. Well, actually, I've got, you know, I'm sitting here, maybe you could say I'm sitting here with all the accounts and what with all the money we're spending on the stadium and my salary, it's very difficult to see. It's very difficult to see where the budget is going to come from for this, for your crazy ideas, Maurizio. You know, so that is going to be an interesting conversation uh, happening next week at Tottenham. Um, Liverpool? Yeah, I hate to say it, Owen, but I was completely right about Liverpool earlier this season. <laughs> I do, sure hate, do to, hate to say it. Yeah, I do hate to to say um, the this. look on Ken's face now—he's just grimacing. This is just—it's hard for you, Ken. But if you could just get through this for the next few minutes, we'd so, all really appreciate it. So they finished by conceding thirty-eight goals uh, in thirty-eight matches, which isn't isn't this outstanding defensive record. It is, however, their best for quite a while. <laughs> uh, it's about the it's about the average of what they conceded when the very defensive Gerard Houllier was the manager. Um, however, they also scored eighty four goals, <clears throat> which is their second highest ever in the Premier League, and uh, and well above. I mean, it's it's more than twenty goals more than Houllier's team would score on average, and also more than twenty goals more than Rafa, Rafa Benitez's team would score on average. They on average conceded thirty goals, but you can see the trade off. Um, you know, when you when you look at the fact that since uh, since this argument sort of broke out about Liverpool, which was September or October, um, oh, they can't defend, they can't defend set pieces. They conceded eleven goals from set pieces. It's not many. Actually, sorry, eight goals from set pieces, which is you know Tottenham and Manchester United. I would say considered two of the better organised teams defensively in the league. Both conceded ten. Um, since the Tottenham game, 
Uh, there's been 29 matches since Liverpool were smashed by Tottenham at Wembley. Since then, they've got the best defensive record in the league. It's almost as though this method of playing so that your opponents are penned back in their own half and don't actually get that many chances to shoot in your goal is a really effective way to play. The two teams that use it are Liverpool and Manchester City. One of them won the title setting all these records. The other one's in the Champions League final. Uh, Manchester United conceded fewer goals than Liverpool, although more than Manchester City. Um, but, you know, they they didn't, uh, in some respects, perform as well. It's also... Of a season, they scored they scored a lot less and have a, and have a lower goal difference. Yeah. It's so, also as though signing Virgil van Dijk for 75 million helps things it's, along a little It's bit. true, although Virgil van Dijk only played in half of the matches since, since that time. Again, Virgil van Dijk, the decision to wait for Virgil van Dijk rather than to sign... Somebody else, when they couldn't get him in the summer, was something Klopp was being criticised for at the same time. It's almost as though he knows what he's doing in some way and isn't a total idiot. You know, you know what I mean? I'm sorry, and I hate to, I hate to gloat. You do, I know. Yep. But I do, uh, I do feel as though it was fair enough to point out Mohamed Salah managed to break the record for the uh, most goals in a 38-game Premier League season. Uh, there was a lot of stuff. It wasn't wasn't a great day for Shane Duffy. I don't know if you saw the game. They were showing it. Shane Duffy gave away a couple of penalties which weren't given. And then the Andy Robinson goal deflected into the net off his brain. So, overall, it wasn't... No, Liverpool. I did see a good bit of it again. Uh, felt, Liverpool's attack is funny these days. They're, they're butchering some chances. The Mane one to the, sell. Two of Mane's ones. There's, there's one where Firmino had peeled off to the left of the goalkeeper it was a two on one in the sense of being a two on the goalkeeper mm. and all Mane had to do was roll it to the left which he didn't do and Firmino kicked the post in frustration or yeah. kicked the air and then I thought if he overcompensated the second time by saying I better get this to Salah as soon as possible on my right hand side yeah. and didn't commit the goalkeeper before doing it so by the time he rolls it to Salah the keeper's like oh well that was obviously what we were going to do yeah, and he, he makes the save the second one was they clearly still scored, a they still, yeah, no, they still scored a bunch of goals so it's not the end of the world the se- second one was obviously a response to the first one yeah. uh, in terms of he passed the one that he should have shot and shot the one that he should have passed he did it, just did it the wrong way around uh, I think he played very well though overall um, I, d- I do think he, his, I, his form has improved a lot since la- since earlier in the season. I do think the pass wasn't necessarily the wrong option in itself, but it, it was just so telegraphed and they were too clo- they were too close together. It's yeah. like they were standing. Salah they made a strange route. So Salah went as though he was going to go around the far side and then double but checked back, and yeah, the two of them ended up standing a foot aside from each other where they should have been about six yeah. feet away. From each other. I mean, Salah was kind of just getting him to support him, but Mane should have just just shot. Like, I yeah. mean, he, he was confusing. Salah was confusing the issue, and then you're, you're kind of like, is Mane? think he should give it to him because of the goal record? I mean, he's already got the record. Uh, is this, you know, he, he, this was after Salah had already scored the game. Anyway, <clears throat> uh, I'm sure Damien Murphy will enjoy uh, next week as the uh, Champions League final is on in Kiev. But what else happened? To, obviously, Stoke got relegated. West Brom and Swansea, they're the confirmed relegated teams. We sort of knew this before the weekend. Two teams who lost their identity in the Premier League, Stoke and um, Swansea, one who never really established... One, West Brom. I mean, what what is their, what has their identity been in this stint? You know, just a, a kind of a, any 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 suggestions? Well, how long was Tony Pulis their manager? Tony Pulis, um, not over long. No, not very long. I'll I'll Good. see how long he was the, actually the West Brom manager. There's nothing jumping out at me, Ken. No, West Brom. no, I'm, I'm afraid I'm. They're an instantly blank. forgettable team. Other than it's sort of a, a incidents around James McLean. A halfway house to retirement for a lot of British players. Um, 
Yeah, well, I think I think actually you've put your finger uh, on the the salient thing for me about about West Brom and about Stoke is that these are two two former Tony Pulis teams have been relegated, mm. and you yeah, sort of a lot of ex Manchester United players or you know a team players who hadn't didn't really establish themselves at bigger teams, kind of washing down the. Uh, you know, through the through the through the system, through the football pyramid, until they reach West Brom mm. and taking it from there. Well, Pulis has been has been sort of diligently filling his squads full of these types of players, and it's like, um, you know, you, I, I think Tony Pulis. I remember when Tony Pulis was fired by West Brom. I saw Stephen Gerrard on BT Sports say, "Well, I just think, I just wonder if West Brom will come to regret this." You know, he's never been relegated. And he still has that record, um, because he was the manager until until earlier this like November this season. He he had been the manager since the beginning of 2015. So, best part of uh, best part of three years actually at West Brom. Um, but Jared had said, "Look, he he will be. Um, they'll regret this. He's never been relegated. They wouldn't be relegated if he was the manager." And. You could say, well, Jared's words proved to be wise. Mm-hmm. You know, I think the damage was already done by him being, having been the manager for so many years. Uh, I think he would have been relegated if he hadn't been sacked. You know, and there's no there's no way to prove that. I mean, Tony Pulis is now managing Middlesbrough, who were losing the first leg of the Championship playoff semi against Villa over the weekend, and um, so he's already sort of moved on, leaving behind this squad, which is full of like. Really, it's the oldest squad in the in the league because Tony Pulis always likes to have um, experience. Al- he always likes to have quite elderly squads um, because he he again exactly on as you said as you said experience. But you know how much you also need players who are kind of useful and able to able to move around a lot. Um, I mean, West Brom are up there and. Stoke, Stoke were the other Tony Pulis team who kind of appointed Marquis to change what they were, and he didn't really manage to turn them into anything, and they just became a kind of a shapeless mess, and now they're gone. And I don't know how long it's going to be until they come back up, but I can't, I don't, they don't look like something that's really going to bounce too high. Um, I think that like it, it's Tony Pulis is going to fill your team with sort of players who can ultimately only play nineteen nineties football. And then another manager comes along and it's kind of like, well, what am I supposed to do here? You know, I mean, how many of these kind of fighter pilots today could fly like a, a triplane? That's what you're asking people to do if they if they follow, if they follow Tony Pulis. And yet they had a rejuvenation towards the end of the season, just a little bit too late. When Darren Moore arrives. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, they, yeah, they it, it did look as though they, they might comically escape. But I think in the end they, they got what they... Uh, deserved. I just think it's you know we'll, we'll watch what happens now. It'll be like Pulis has never been relegated. Uh, his like his reputation sort of s- will survive intact. But when I look at it, it's, it just seems to me as though this ended the way it was going to. You need to look beyond the just week to week level. I think if you look at the long term, you can see what's what's happened there. What else is going on? Um, this Premier League season. Arsene Wenger's last game. Uh, the retirement has been going on a while. It's a bit like Brian O'Driscoll's retirement. It is over now. It's not a retirement. He said he's he's, he's going to go on. He said like with this sort of faintly tragic air, you know, it's it's a drug. I'm addicted. It's too late. It's too late for me now. I will work again in football. 
I'm thinking it's never too late. Like, you know, could always step away. I mean, maybe the drug, maybe when you think about it, it's kind of unhealthy. <laughs> maybe a period of cold turkey might change your outlook on things. Um, I'm not sure. Uh, but people were talking then about um, who who is going to be the replacement manager for Arsene Wenger. And the kind of a lot of the talk last week had been, oh, Allegri. Allegri will be the manager. He's, you know, experienced Juventus manager. Allegri's just won his fourth domestic double in a row with Juventus, their seventh title in a row. He's been to two Champions League finals another time. And the bad news for Arsenal is apparently he's staying. He's going nowhere. Uh, Juventus are happy with him uh, after winning four doubles in a row. Uh, and he says, unless they fire me, I'm going to be here next season. So they could always fire him, but it would be a bit harsh, uh, which would leave Arsenal not being managed by Allegri. But maybe that doesn't matter, as maybe their intention all along has been to hire a left-field candidate in Mikel Arteta. I've seen this gathering momentum in recent days, mm. this Arteta idea. What's How does anyone know if Arteta's any good as a manager? Well, if people have... I mean, Arteta was at Arsenal for, what, six years? Mm-hmm. So they know Arteta. They know what he's like. Um, uh, but you go by, by, for Patrick Vieira if you were going along those... Well, not necessarily. I mean, you're obviously valuing the fact that he's got coaching experience uh, with a genius manager at the highest level mm-hmm. ahead of maybe what Vieira has been doing. I mean, Vieira's been off in New York. Yeah. You know? It's a long way from the the heartbeat of the action, you could say, in in terms of the uh, Pep revolution. Um I think this is actually the right kind of manager for Arsenal to hire. I mean, it all comes down to Arteta and his and his and his ability to cut it. I mean, I think the, I like the idea of hiring a young a younger manager who is familiar with the club and is also a, a recently retired player who is who is kind of up to date with what's happening in the game right now. Not somebody who's been kind of at the top. For a while, like a Louis Van Hal type for Manchester United, like the kind of stuff Man United have been doing, you know, since you know hiring Van Hal, hiring Jose, you know these sort of proven names, big name managers, manage lots of big clubs. They can manage this big club. Arsenal could have got involved in that, but I think if they hired Arteta, it would show they were trying to do things a little bit differently. Uh, and I think it is more a more intelligent way to go about it. But it all hinges on whether Arteta can actually cut it. Can Mikel Arteta? actually handle being the manager of a club like Arsenal. Arsenal has been quite a peaceful club to manage over the last while. I mean, Wenger has, has cultivated a quite peaceful uh, environment with the squad. You know, it's not as though people... Well, on the pitch, yeah. On not, the, not, not, not from the stands. No, not, not in the stands. But the, but the, the, the training ground, the dressing room, the, the squad is a haven of peace and uh, sort of fraternal regard of these, uh, you know well-rewarded Arsenal players. It hasn't exactly been like FC Hollywood, you know, this, you know, monstrous egos raging out of control, um, guys who the can't Dallas bear Cowboys to look at each other. from the uh, early 90s or something like that. No, know? it's not like that. I mean, you know, you don't get the... There, there aren't, like, people who are getting really angry because they're not on the team or people are accepting of each other and supportive and all that kind of stuff. So it's been kind of a peaceful environment. It may not always be like that, particularly if it gets a bit more... I mean, a few more Aubameyangs in there. I mean, Aubameyang has been playing amazingly for Arsenal this season, you know? Um, 
I mean, he's had he's had an absolutely outstanding beginning to his Arsenal career. But like, he's not a player who would sit on the bench. You know, not that he will be sitting on the bench. But I'm saying, a couple, if they have a couple more players on that level, that things get a little bit. It's a more difficult squad to manage. Whether Arteta can do that uh, remains to be seen. I mean, it looks as though he may be the manager. Um, again, we don't know yet, but we'll we'll wait and see. Mancini becoming the new Italy coach with uh, Carlo Ancelotti, who was also linked to Arsenal, uh, perhaps going to succeed Sarri. At Napoli, Sarri going to Chelsea. So this big um, kind of, I don't know, was it a daisy chain? Human centipede? I don't know what you call it. Uh, managers all... Managerial merry-go-round, they call it. Uh, managerial right. merry-go-round. Merry-go-round, that's the one. Uh, okay. What's the last thing here on just a bit of Neymar talk? I haven't had it for a while. No, he's, he's been... He's just Are there a Diego Torres piece? No. 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 He's been keeping his head down. Trying to get back to full fitness, I presume. Yeah, Diego Torres? No, no, he's started training with a ball again. But but there has been uh, speculation raging over his uh, future as he, while he was in, um, he, he's he's recovering in in Brazil, but was apparently meeting with people to do with Real Madrid over there and all this sort of stuff. I mean, I don't think Real Madrid, I honestly, <laughs> I, I honestly can't say with confidence that Madrid would definitely want to sign Neymar. I think they might have wanted to sign him last summer, but after everything that's happened, it, I think it, it's getting to be more of a risky uh, move. Um, this was put to Nasser Khalifi, the guy who is running uh, PSG. He said, uh, he's saying here 2,000%. It's false, and I will not respond to rumors. The Spanish media have spoken since October saying Neymar is not happy. Uh, actually, your former manager, Unai Emery, said he didn't think Neymar was happy either and said that he d- he hadn't integrated into Paris at all and all he does is go to his house and lock himself in. Uh, so I don't know if he's working for the Spanish media as well or if he's working to serve the interests of, of Real Madrid as well, but it does seem as though this is a real thing that's happening. Neymar himself says he is tired of this talk and doesn't want to talk about it anymore, <laughs> which is not exactly the same as saying, I'm totally committed to Paris. But he also gave this weird interview to Zico. I mean, it's just so weird. Like, Just listen to his quotes, right? This is Neymar. We were doing great with Messi, and then came Suarez. He was the icing on the cake. It was great for the three of us, for the team. Messi and I were close to Suarez. We became inseparable. We get along really well. And we knew what to do. During practice, Messi and I would goof around with the ball. Suarez would come up to us and I would be mad at him. During a match, I had a play where I beat the defenders and passed the ball. Messi did the same. Suarez tried it too and we began to laugh. We were so close, we would laugh at each other when sometimes we wouldn't get something right. He told us he tried to emulate what we had done. We had a great friendship. What I miss about Barcelona is playing with Messi and Suarez. We were happy. We were friends. But you left him. What is going on in this guy's brain? I mean, I suppose what it shows is that, I mean, he's speaking very, very fondly about his time with Barcelona playing with these great players, which you would have thought looking on would be exactly the reason why he wouldn't have left. You know, if you're a great, if you're a great footballer, you get to play with two of the other best players in the world. And you get on team. well with them. Just, this is it. Like, this is, it's a perfect situation. Why throw it away? Um, maybe you're not the one who's really deciding. I mean, I do, you know, I've, I suppose we've been criticizing, well, I've been criticizing Neymar a lot because I think, I think he's an idiot. I think he's, he, he's made a lot of bad decisions. I mean, he's demoted himself from the top level of, of football for in, in what to me seems like his values are, are warped. Like what he thinks he's going to become the, the Ballon d'Or, like he, he's, he attaches outsized importance to this award 
and he thinks he's going to get this award, which will officially confirm he's the best player in the world, by playing at a, at a, at a lower level with worse players. It doesn't make any sense, you know? But the alternative explanation, which I'm coming to believe more, more in, okay, I'm, not, I'm still not going to give Neymar much credit, but I don't think he's running his own life. You know, when he talks like this about his, his past life, you're like, okay, well, you're obviously not the... It doesn't sound to me as though you were the one who decided to move on. You think Neymar Sr. maybe has a say? He's just taking... It, it seems as though he's just sort of sitting there going, oh, what do I do now? You know, it's like he, he's, he's absent from the controls of his own, of his own setup, it appears. It, it seems to me as though the only thing that motivates him is like when he becomes bored and doesn't want to do something anymore. That's the only time that he actually intervenes on his own behalf and says... Uh, and gives a directive about what to do. It's like, no, we're not doing this anymore. And I wonder if something like that is going to happen with Paris Saint-Germain. You know, Paris Saint-Germain becomes like some onerous task that he no longer has any interest in and will say, look, I don't care, just get me out of here. Um, but it seems as though, the more the more I hear from him, the more I feel as though he personally had very little to do with the fact that he ended up there. That's a wrap on today's Report on Sport. I'll give you the unvarnished account of what happened, will I? There was a train at like one o'clock back to Paris. Arrived at the station in Saint-Étienne before that train was due to go to find utter bedlam. The seat numbers weren't being respected. It was with an air of foreboding. I went to find Place 41 and as I expected, it already contained a tired looking England fan, Geordie man, probably in his late twenties. He knew why I had come and I looked at him sternly and waggled my ticket and said, sorry mate, it's actually my seat. And he said, sorry, mate, we've actually just been told to sit anywhere. The seat numbers don't count. Basically tough shit. I've sulked and stomped around a little bit and complained and sent angry text messages to people who didn't care. But then I thought, there's no point in just sitting here. Who knows what might happen? Possession was now 100% of the law. You have to go and find someone else whose seat you can take. So I started walking along the train, and in the very end, Karis, there was a couple of empty seats. Huh. Oh, that's interesting. I went on to the first empty seat I saw. I tried to sit down. The England fans there said, sorry, mate, our friend's there. So I said, okay. Moved up, went to the next empty seat, sat down. Guy next to it, no complaints. Well, the situation seems to have changed. I'm now one of the haves rather than the have-nots. A few minutes later, as I suspected it might, previous over the seat came along and said, sorry, mate, that's my seat. And I said, sorry, mate, my seat is actually Watcher 12 class 41 but there's someone sitting in it so i just came and sat in this seat which which is unoccupied there's a lot of us in the same boat and he said but that's ridiculous i've just gone to the canteen and i got this orangina and i said i know i'm really sorry it's really unfair the system is a total shambles he walked away saying the word tosser i felt bad for the guy maybe he didn't realize that he was in the jungle he still thought he was on the train but this was actually a jungle and i thought to myself well I can't really complain about that characterization of my behavior at this moment. However, I do have a seat and I don't think anyone saw. Well, Barcelona's hopes of an unbeaten season were ended last night in dramatic circumstances. You may have seen this crazy game against Levante, finished 5-4. But don't worry, Barca fans, Leo Messi was rested for the game, so he will be nice and fresh for the midweek friendly in South Africa. Um, In what could be... Another sign that the football world is changing pretty dramatically at the moment in terms of priorities and where clubs are placing their resources. Tag Panja of the New York Times has been writing about some big changes in the game, so I'm interested to see where he thinks something like this episode fits into it. Hi, Tariq, how are you? I'm very well, thanks. Is this a bit of a watershed moment for 
domestic leagues, do you think? Barcelona essentially giving up the chance, not that they knew they were going to do it, but giving themselves a lesser chance of finishing a league season unbeaten so that they could focus on a friendly game in South Africa. Yeah, I think, it, it, like you said, all the kind of other discussions around football and money, which I guess have existed for the last 10, 15 years. We've seen you know, over over the last several years talks of um, revamping the Champions League. Like from next season, we're going to have um, the biggest four teams from the biggest five leagues guaranteed these places, more money, uh, more, more profile, talk about games being played um you know, I remember the UEFA president recently saying, oh, why not maybe a game, a Champions League game in, in America, etc. Uh, chase for markets, chase for money. It makes you wonder, you know, what 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 what, what is football for? What are these football organisations supposed to be doing? What is the priority? Is it is it football or is it, um, you know, a dash for cash? And then what do you do with that money? What's the point of it? One of the, uh, one of the big uh, proposed changes is something that you've been covering in the New York Times, which has to do with FIFA's Club World Cup, which is a tournament which has been which has been going on for some time without too many people in Europe getting very excited about it. Um, but the changes that are being suggested are very radical. There, there's there's something that I don't think we've seen in football before. Can you outline what has been uh, what FIFA are considering at the moment? Who's who's been speaking to them and what are they speaking about? Essentially, a, a group of um, investors. We understand that. Um, SoftBank, uh, which runs uh, its Japanese-run uh, investment fund, it runs the largest tech fund in the world. So it has a sort of a hundred billion dollars, almost hundred billion dollars, at its disposal. It's been in talks with FIFA to um, what what critics was essentially buy two uh, tournaments of FIFA. So the Club World Cup, which has been kind of this you know pretty average tournament that's played every year, where essentially more often not a European team beats a South American team in a final and nobody really pays attention. They want to revamp that into a 24-team World Cup-style tournament held in a venue uh, in, somewhere in the world uh, in June and July uh, over, over um, you know, maybe a little bit less than a month. So just like the World Cup, but just for clubs. Um, and also um, a, a League of Nations concept, which UEFA is this year in its own in its own region. So um, four divisions of the top national teams playing each other, uh, and then ending uh, with a eight nation tournament every two years. And they think they can get um, as much as two billion dollars for each uh, version of, of that nation's league concept, and, and a massive three billion. Uh, from um, the Club World Cup tournament, which the numbers are kind of eye-watering and astonishing. And, and, and to many people, probably even FIFA, don't actually make sense. Because um, I've got hold of a document um, which has FIFA's own um, calculations before this fund emerged for, for a revamped Club World Cup along these lines, 24 clubs, etc. And at best, at best, it says it's worth a billion dollars. So you've got to wonder... <laughs> why someone is willing to pay three times more for, for, for this concept than, than FIFA's bean counters uh, um, expected at best. And then this Nations League thing, which no one's kind of tested, uh, we don't know if that's going to work, um, what the market will be for that competition, that's, that's valued at $2 billion a pop. 
Um, sorry, then, sorry, then sorry, I, sorry. You know, you've, yeah. you've, you've given me you give me so many different um, pieces of information here. I'm struggling to make sense of them. This this Nations League is like a FIFA. It would be a sort of a, under the auspices of FIFA Nations League. It's it's different from the UEFA Nations League, I, I assume. But how exactly would it work? Well, um, <laughs> it's a good, good question. <laughs> kind of a convoluted way of having uh, uh, replacing friendlies with regional leagues. Um, of 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 nations playing each other, and the top few in each group will, will qualify for for finals. The top final, i.e., the best eight teams in the world in these leagues, will play off in a one-off tournament every two years. You know, you, UEFA had this plan, kind of man- manageable plan, to have their own one, which I think they will have. It's going to start in September. It's definitely going to happen. Um, and um, FIFA thought, yeah, we like that, um, so we're going to take it. Essentially, what we're also seeing is this real battle, I think, for primacy over football, um, which has been bubbling under the surface for, for, for decades, really, between UEFA and FIFA, over who actually um, owns all of football, because Champions League, etc., is is a UEFA uh, product, uh, UEFA makes lots of money from it, distributes or most of that money to the clubs, etc. But that is UEFA's um, regular cash cow. And FIFA haven't got anything like that and had one. They've kind of cast envious eyes at that for, for years, from the Blatter Platini years. And of course, Gianni Fantino, you know, was, was FIFA's uh, UEFA's general secretary before he, he moved to FIFA. So, you know, he, he was one crowing about the fact that UEFA was so much more powerful than, than FIFA. Now he's in the big seat, I guess. He's thinking, you know, we. I want to get back control. I, I want that stuff, and it's kind of um, not a very edifying situation, to be honest with you. This kind of you know behind the, what's happening behind the scenes here. Yeah, the, just I mean, you mentioned the figure of of twenty five billion dollars, which is hmm. which is obviously everyone's like, wow, twenty five billion. What hmm. I mean, FIFA's revenue, as far as I know, is about five billion dollars per. World Cup cycle, so every, mm. every so every that's approximately that's mm. the kind of ballpark. Okay, so twenty <laughs> the twenty five billion is is like five times FIFA's revenue over a four yearly World Cup cycle. Mm. Mm-hmm. How how, yeah, how, yeah. how does it break down? Like, I mean, what what what? Why would they be paid so much money? What are they selling for twenty five billion dollars? I don't understand. What, what, you, what you also, and this is again, FIFA has not disclosed um, the identities of, of, of the people who are proposing this. And I think that's when we get into kind of the political arena as well. So, um, you know, I mentioned um, SoftBank. Um, SoftBank has the Vision Fund, which is this $100 billion tech fund. By far the biggest investor in this fund to the tune of around $45 billion, is Saudi Arabia. So Saudi Arabia, you may have seen this this um, uh, young prince, uh, 32-year-old um, chap who's been sort of on a globe-trotting adventure over the last two months, three months or so. Um, he's spearheading Saudi's kind of uh, reform, a massive switch uh, to its economy. They're trying to open up, um, trying to uh, both invest outside of Saudi and also show the attractiveness of Saudi Arabia to, to, to the rest of the world, to investors. Say, look, we're going to be um, more open players in the market and we're going we're gonna to kind of loosen some of those um, strict rules and regulations both in, uh, over our economy but also over our society. And sport is seen as a kind of 
primary tool in, in this. We've kind of talked about it over the last few years with China and now Saudi Arabia want to try and own a bit of sport and football being the biggest sport, it kind of is this tug of war for control. Um, and and, and I, you know, my understanding is Saudi Arabia are huge players in this, in this um, investment plan for, 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 for football. Um, whether it makes kind of economic sense or, or whether the market can sustain that kind of number, kind of for them, maybe like that's by the by, but we're going to really make our mark. We're going to own the world's biggest sport. Um, and then to make it even more complicated, at the same time, they're having this kind of nasty dispute with Qatar, which has involved them blockading with the United Emirates um, and, and some others, blockading Qatar and getting into a very nasty diplomatic spat with Qatar. Yeah, this is so, another story that you've, that you've been covering uh, recently, Tarek, which, which is related, really, because it sort of it cuts to the financial underpinning of the game, in a sense. I think you were out in, in Doha. I don't know if you had the, had the pleasure of hanging out with uh, Andy Gray and, and Richard Keyes. I have seen them on Being Sports talking about the situation, but it, but it appears, according to your story, that, that Saudi Arabia, or somebody in Saudi Arabia, is... <laughs> is pirating Qatar's all, all Qatar's very expensive sports content and sort of streaming it free to the world just because it's like, well, what are you going to do about it? Yeah, it's, yeah. Essentially, um, they're saying, you know, whether it's government backed or not, I haven't been able to to, to, to prove that in any way. But that country being what it is, you can't really get away with stuff unless someone powerful wants you to, right? So. Um, they uh, essentially have stolen a TV network in the sense um, BN Sports has these very expensive um, uh, rights, has very expensive production facilities, and they have kind of, on an ind- industrial scale, um, set up 10 TV channels called B Out Q, not, not such a subtle <laughs> you know, nudge at what they're getting at. And uh, they're beaming this live... Uh, sports content not only on the internet through streaming but they've managed to buy um uh, you know the satellite feed and decoder boxes etc so you know you could go into the equivalent of um you know in england there would be uh, dixons or something go and buy a box and then uh, watch 10 stolen tv channels you know I, i'm laughing because it's, it's just so bizarre but but and they get away with it because um uh, qatar cannot take any action there because um, not a single lawyer is willing to represent them. Uh, and, and again, this, this kind of shows, uh, in a way, the, the difficulties uh, potential investors may face, not only in Saudi Arabia, but any of these Gulf monarchies. Yeah, we want your money, we're going to protect your money, we're going to do business with you, until the day we say we don't like you. Then we're going to say, what are you going to do about it? Um, and then then you sort of, um, sort of uh, frame that in the FIFA context you know are these the people you want to do business with as well because one day they could say you know mr infantino we absolutely love you we're going to we're going to back your your uh, big project and then you know a week later six months later they can say you know what mr infantino um we're going to get rid of you because we don't like you or we're going to say we're going to demand you move fifa to um Jeddah or wherever right yeah it, it this 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 kind of um I don't know, kind of um, vulgar in some ways, um, pursuit and purchase of global football, be it by Saudi or, you know, in the past by Qatar or by China or whatever, seems to have no bounds. 
and the people who are responsible maybe for governing football um, are really seduced with the by the cash because in a way they will argue that enables them to maintain their own power because Infantino and FIFA have written letters to to the federations to say look this is what's in it for you. Um, I think the, the European nations were told, look, the top European nation, you can get $50 million more than you can before. Yeah. So, guys, back me, you get $50 million, And don't forget, there's a FIFA presidential election next year, and I'm a candidate. So it's, it's kind of yeah. all quite murky and messy. And then you've got to say, well, what's in it for football? Yeah, well, I mean, I suppose that might have been that might have come up at the meeting you've reported in this meeting that FIFA organised with seven of the biggest clubs. The clubs, mm. the clubs who were invited to this meeting were Man City, owned by Qatar. Uh, mm. oh, I'm sorry, owned by Abu Dhabi, uh, mm. United yeah, exactly. Arab Emirates, yeah. uh, Manchester United, Paris Saint Germain. They are owned by Qatar. Uh, Barcelona were recently sponsored by uh, Qatar Airways. Madrid are sponsored by Emirates. Bayern recently did a big sponsorship deal with Qatar and Juventus. So you can see that the business links are already there, you know, with the with the Middle East from the from all of Europe's biggest clubs. I mean, European football is very much open for business, but it is it's it's kind of interesting that FIFA would organize a meeting with these seven big clubs, and I'm not quite sure how they arbitrarily chose those those particular seven clubs to mm-hmm. sort of have a chat about this Club World Cup idea. I mean, it doesn't seem super transparent or democratic. No, and also you've got to understand that um, those clubs are also part of a bigger group organised for this just this type of issue. It's the European Club Association, right? They, they, they formed this thing in order to talk about issues like this, but they went to meet FIFA outside of the auspices of that group, which I know is upset you know, a lot of members of, 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 of this ECA. And people are saying, you know, well, that's just this kind of uh, one guy I spoke to was like, you know, this is this divide and conquer uh, plan. If you get enough of the big clubs on site, they, on site, they can uh, say, well, you know, what are you going to do? You know, this, this, this kind of maybe shows football up for what it is behind all this sort of romance and all of this, um, uh, all this talk of... Um, fans and local heritage and important social values, etc. It kind of, um, you know, maybe to you and I, Ken, because we've been talking about this, maybe covering these issues for, for, for a while, just shows that ultimately, you know, cash is king and um, global domination is just for the few. Um, what, what kind of football will be left afterwards? Um, you know, who knows? Tark, I want to throw one more competition idea at people, if they, if they are... Um if they're ready for it. And that is one that seems almost quaint now because it's been the idea of it has been around for so long, but it was dredged up again by Arsene Wenger in the last week or two. And that's the European Super League or the Euro League or whatever might end up being called if it ever happens. Wenger said it will happen. It's inevitable because the European clubs need some way of keeping up financially with the Premier League clubs. So if we forget about the World Club Cup idea for the time being, is a European Super League inevitable, as Wenger says? I'm not. I'm not sure if it's inevitable. In, 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 in you know, as he probably knows more, more than us. Maybe he's been talking to people, but but you only have to look at what's happening um, in most of the dom- domestic leagues um, to see um, the total lack of competitive balance across a huge swathe of Europe. Um, if if the likes of Bayern, etc., and 
Juventus winning, I don't know, on the way to winning their upteenth championship in a row, if and Paris uh, sort of dominate France, if 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 this kind of trajectory will continue, which it looks like it will, I haven't seen any any reason to doubt that it will. That there could be pressures to to create something where these teams just keep playing each other on a regular basis, um, uh, create a competition that will. Um, uh, attract um, the biggest broadcasters, biggest sponsors, etc. And yeah, they are envious of, of of the Premier League. So, so on on this on kind of um, the sound kind of reasoning behind why they would want to do it. But what I would what I would ask, I guess, is e- even then, um, is that what the public really want? Um, in, in, in certainly in the domestic markets, is that what they want? Um, because I think there is still quite a lot of more interest in in many places for the domestic competition because it is your home league. The fact is, um, you, you you do something like this, yeah, it's going to be quite interesting, etc. For for a certain amount of time, like twelve teams with all of the best football players, year after year after year after year. When do you when do you think? Well, all right, we've seen that now. Um, is that is that it? Do you know what I mean? There's no yeah. other social underpinnings, etc. Is there anything that keeps football local anymore? Because maybe that's where 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 the market is. They just got to be really careful. They have to be careful that it just doesn't eat itself. And we're watching that you know Cirque du Soleil and um, Super League football or whatever you want to call it, and these people, um, small group of people running around playing each other. It might just get a bit bit boring. Who knows? Who yeah. knows? Absolutely, a lot of food for thought there. Tarek Panja, New York Times. Great to talk to you again. Thanks a million. Thank you. So he's almost like having a second captain in the team. Second captain, first captain, whatever. Richie Sadler's here. Richie, how are you? How are you, lads? How are you, lads? Richie, how are you, lads? How are you doing this week? I'm marvellous. Look at the joy on my face. Look how happy I was. What the fuck happened? (laughs) No, really. You know, what happened? When John was young, everyone in the city... Knew about it, but no one had seen it. It is not war and death and famine. It's not that at all. It's the opposite of that. It's persuaded of the world outside of that. That's why sports important. Okay, so what is your favourite out of those three ideas, Ken? Not that they're all mutually exclusive, but this essentially World Cup-like competition for clubs, a month-long club World Cup, a worldwide league of nations along the lines of what UEFA are about to roll out here in Europe or the good old fashioned idea of a European club super league any of those float your boat I think the club world cup is is a complete nonsense it's it's a total waste of time and it doesn't interest me at all uh, although that's the idea that most of the money seems to be behind uh, and therefore it must have a good prob- probability of happening uh, just for the just for the, the money involved I mean that's all these clubs do now um, the League of Nations, again, does not interest me in the slightest bit. But well, it took you about eight months to explain to myself, Murph, how the European version works. So I'm not looking forward to another long explainer. The European version is just replacing the the friendlies. I mean, it, it I makes, still don't get it, but go on. It, it makes sense in a, uh, in a European context if you're going to have to have these friendlies anyway. I mean, you know, it's it's not, it's adding maybe a couple of games but it's not like a. It's not really that big a deal, you know what I mean? It's not like a massive reorganization of world. It's just a sort of. Is there any way to pretend friendlies are less meaningless than they are? European Super League. 
And the European Super League, I mean, this is the thing Wenger was, was speaking about. And I thought it was interesting. I mean, Wenger was saying, you know, the, if you look at the audience figures for the Champions League, they're not that good. And his solution was more Champions League, more. They move it to Saturdays, uh, relegate the domestic leagues to midweek, uh, reduce the number of teams in them and have, and have the team. Like he, he was making the point that it's going to happen because of clubs like Bayern, Juventus, Barcelona, seeing how much money the Premier League teams are getting and wanting to find some way to, to catch up with them. Uh, and therefore, they would push for it. But this, there's a couple of things there. There's a couple of questions I would have. Number one, are you so sure that this is what people want to watch? Maybe your viewing figures are a sign that they're not that interesting. I mean, Real, Real played Bayern there. I mean, it was, a, it was a good game in a way, but is it necessarily... I'm amazed that viewing figures haven't been that great considering how amazing the competition's been this year. The football has been good, but maybe people, people aren't evidently so interested in the competition, at least according to to Arsene but I'm not sure that more of it is necessarily then the answer um, then you've got the question of why would the English clubs be interested in something that was going to uh, that was going to bring everyone else up to their level if that's what Wenger is saying it'll be these other clubs trying to get up there why would the English clubs necessarily want that mm-hmm. if they've got this advantage as it stands and certainly not all of them would be able to get in I mean how many how many would get in six would it be six you know mm-hmm. where do you where do you cut it off and then, and then you've got the, you know, I mean, as Tarek was saying, maybe the domestic the domestic football is more interesting to people. I mean, if you saw the Levante-Barca game the other night, like see the Levante fans in that stadium and what a what an amazing time they were having. You know, if you do kind of feel if, if Barcelona were to sort of detach completely from their surroundings in Spain and just sort of float above Europe like a satellite, you know, beaming down these, uh, playing Bayern and Manchester United and Juventus like all the time. Yeah, it could be a bit would, sanitized or something. It, it would. It would. It would all feel a bit kind of uh, fake or something like this. I also do wonder. I mean, in the in in terms of the competitive balance, um, as Tar- Tariq mentioned, I mean, you do see a situation where okay, what if like a certain amount of teams, a certain section of teams are now so rich they can only really play against each other now. Like that's the only place there's competition. But I'm not sure. I'm not sure about it. I mean. You can see that even in the Premier League, which is supposedly the most equal league in in terms of uh, money, I mean, the, the team that's bottom of the league gets £100 million from television, which is more than almost any other team in Europe will get. You can still you can see in, in this league, there's also this big competitive imbalance in terms of one really dominant uh, team at the top and a couple of other rich teams who are beating everybody else. So it seems as though there's something else going on besides, it's not just because of money. There's also some kind of psychological domination going on which has always been the case you know always in football even before the money became such a a determining factor this idea of a team being beaten before it takes the field you know what i mean it's every every dominant team uh, going back throughout history has you know people complain oh so half the teams they play are beaten before they even start and i think that's actually as big a problem as the superior resources. We heard quite a bit about being sports during that interview, Ken. I believe you have a bit of audio here from the face, maybe even the faces of being sports. All right, insane. Uh, I don't know how many, I don't know who else could be the faces. Being sports is presence in many different countries, and I don't know if the same faces are promoted in every country, but certainly the faces of Andy Gray and Richard Keyes uh, will be associated with be in sports in this part of the world and they recently had Peter Reid over to their studio in Doha 
Peter Reid had a chance to look around some of the outstanding facilities being constructed for the 2022 World Cup and professed himself extremely <laughs> impressed about what he saw going on. We can, we can hear, I think, a little bit from uh, Andy and, uh, and Richard. Listen, I was sceptical before I arrived here, but in the five years I've been here, you know, you get one over. I mean, I, politically, I know nothing what's happened, not really. No. But from what I see culturally around this, this country, they are very proud of being given the World Cup. They are so determined to make it a successful World Cup. And the infrastructure, that I've seen such a huge change in this country in five years with the infrastructure, with the roads, the railways, that, uh, that will make a huge difference. It has difference. caused, I mean, you talk about the politics, it's the one thing I, I, I don't get involved in because I don't understand it, but it has caused a lot of consternation and jealousy. Uh, mm -hmm. There have been countries within this region, Andy, that have, have, have worked very hard to have the World Cup taken from yeah, Qatar. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, it hasn't happened. It, it will be the case that four years from now, Qatar will host the World Cup. Mm. But you see, this is something I don't understand at all. Culturally, I've enjoyed being in this part of the world. If I park my car and leave the keys in it, I know it'll be there when I come back. Yeah. If I leave the house and forget to lock up, I know that no one's going to break mm -hmm. in when I'm away. Culturally, theft is frowned upon in mm -hmm. this part of the world. Very much so. But this, a state-sponsored bootlegging operation, is theft. <laughs> that's that's Tariq's story in the New York Times that they're just getting onto at the end there. I mean, oh, yeah, yeah. theft is frowned upon. <laughs> I'm not sure what penalties Richard Gaze would have in mind for these. Uh, will we hear the end of his thing about bootleggers? I repeat again, if you're watching us through an official Be In Sports platform, you're very welcome. If you are watching our product through any other system, you are part of a mass bootlegging organization and you should not be watching in that manner. <laughs> in that manner. I, I, look, we recorded that off the official Be In Sports website, so <laughs> it did come through the official Be In Sports uh, channel. I mean, it's a, it's a, it was an amazing story. I mean, you know, they paid billions for these rights and just having the piss taken out of them by neighbouring countries who are saying, what are you going to do about it? What are you going to do about it, Qatar? Seems like you're a little isolated at the moment. I mean, Richard Keyes uh, wouldn't know anything about that because he doesn't know. He doesn't, doesn't, he doesn't understand. He doesn't understand the politics. Don't get involved in it. Don't it, understand it's it. It's really not that difficult to understand. You know, the problem has to do with the one and a half million people living in labor camps outside town that's the problem you know well, I, ju I haven't seen it ken you know try, try driving out, out outside town it's, it's probably tinted about 20 minutes tinted windows on the way to the golf course ken. <laughs> probably about, sorry okay i mean how, andy gray was was talking about how he was skeptical that qatar could do the infrastructure i mean how closely have you been following the story of qatar not very closely these People can afford to get stuff built. Yeah, we all thought the stadium would get built and the roads would be okay. Would Getting be fine. 32 training centres together for the World Cup teams not is not, not going to be a problem. The problem has to do with other things that are going on. Uh, it was never in doubt that it would be built. Well, what was in doubt was the ethics of how it was done. Not something that they've been following very closely, but um, exquisitely sensitive to the ethics of... Uh, yeah of pirating uh, football streams. That is the last Premier League show of the season. But do not forget, the FA Cup final, Champions League final and World Cup coverage will be wall-to-wall -wall on the Second Captain's World Service over the, over the next couple of months. And sure, by the time that's all over with, we'll be pretty much ready to go with the new season of the Premier League. Just keeps on ticking. Thanks, Ken. Thank you, Thanks, Owen. Kieran. Thank you, Owen. Thank you, Ken. Thanks, Thanks for listening. Talk to you during the week. 
don't know. They never go home. They never go home. They never go home. Those 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 boys. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. 